This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. Stand by, 15 seconds to air. Stand by, old camera, and videotape. Ready with your opening graphics. Stand by, Howard. Here we come, Frank. Ready, Don. Stand by, audio, your opening music, and roll tape. Take tape. They were here before the National Football League, the, these Green Bay Packers under Curly Lambeau. The Packers have been great for the NFL. You would not have the NFL without the Green Bay Packers. It's small-town America. It's blue-collar America. It's owned by the fans. The interesting thing with Packers history is there's so much legend and lore. Green Bay is a very religious, a very religious city. The first religion is the Packers. I consider it the greatest story in sports. Gentlemen, this is the most important play we have. The play we must make, though. Hut, hut, hut. The Vince Lombardi Trophy is coming home where it started. When you talk about football in Green Bay, you always talk about the Packers, and you always talk about 1919. But football in Green Bay goes back to the late 1800s, the town team era. Just groups of young men who wanted to play this new game. Most cities across the United States, at least in the Midwest and the East, had town football teams, Green Bay included. There's an article in a Green Bay paper in 1895. It talks about the first amateur football team playing and how people loved the game right from the start. They would follow the football game passionately until the snow flies. Some years they played a game or two, other years they might have played five or six. It's kind of it haphazardly organized. There's nothing to aspire to. You just play ball, beat the stuffings out of each other, and then have a beer afterwards. They would make dates for a game, but sometimes the game never came off, depending what the weather was like, or depending if the team could actually show up for that scheduled date. In Green Bay, amateur football is loosely organized and is not connected to the original Packers. When the Packers were founded in 1919, they just started out as another one of those town teams. This was just gonna be the Indian packing team. Nobody had any idea what they were creating. A recognized anomaly, not only in the NFL, but the entire history of sports. A legacy unlike any other. People can take a tremendous amount of pride in the fact that you have this small city having this great, big, larger-than-life football franchise. can never happen again. It's kind of amazing that it happened the first time. The Packers are explained by fate and random odds. Um, and a miracle of sorts. They somehow managed to survive. And yet it's not only survived, it's been the most successful team in the history of the league. The single greatest achievement of the Green Bay Packers is that they're still in Green Bay. What is it about Green Bay, Wisconsin, the place and its people that create such an unlikely history? The late 1700s and into the early 1800s, the French are primarily settling with the Native Americans that are here. There wasn't a lot of ethnic until the 1840s, and the Germans and the Irish and the Dutch started to come into the area. The Belgians were a little bit later. They wanted to become Americans, and therefore they wanted to learn English 
and become Americanized because this was going to be their home. So they come, immigrants whose perseverance bring them to a little settlement on the Bay of Lake Michigan. Here, they build their homes, build their lives, and Curly Lambeau builds a football team. Curly and his family, they were what we would call Walloon Belgians. Sure, the uh, French-speaking Belgians. They were a very itinerant family. Wherever there was work, you went to work. You would learn to trade in terms of being a mason or a plumber or an electrician. It's a blue-collar town with blue-collar people, blue-collar values, a great place uh, to raise a family. Everybody felt like they were the same. There were four kids in every house. If you didn't have four, it was like there was something wrong with you. The Lambos, much like other Belgian immigrants, a Catholic family of hardy stock. Lived on the northeast side of Green Bay, where a lot of the Belgian immigrants had settled. Curly was baptized at St. Peter and Paul. It's a hard life. Maybe that's why they're drawn to this physical, brutal sport. It was kind of a rough game. And I think for some reason, people like to see violence. For Curly's grandfather, violence is inherent. In 1891, uh, seven years before Curly was born, his grandfather, Victor Lambeau, encountered his wife on a Monday afternoon. As reported in the Daily State Gazette October 5th, Victor Lambeau, the well-known East River Mason and contractor, met his wife at the corner of Main Street and Webster Avenue. In a jealous rage, drawing a revolver from his hip pocket, shot and injured her, then committed suicide. Marie, his wife, lived for almost another 30 years. Born April 9th, 1898, Earl Curly Lambeau is born in a small brick home on the east side of Green Bay. Fittingly, the same side of town on which the Packers begin a dynasty. Green Bay came about as a result of a merger between the city of Fort Howard, which was the west side, and the city of Green Bay, which was the east side. I married a West Side girl, and, and uh, that was, uh, yeah, that was probably a breach of etiquette. The Fox River runs right through Green Bay. If you go from one side of town to the other side of town, it almost felt like you needed a passport. If you were an East Sider or a West Sider, there was a difference in Green Bay. I mean, that river went right up to heaven. A lifeline for cargo and transportation the Fox River is also the dividing line between booming business and body affairs. They had not merged until right around the turn of the century. Uh, so there was, there was always that east-west issue. When they were separate cities, they didn't like each other. Once they were merged, people on each side of the river still didn't like each other. It was working class who lived on the west side and it was more professional people who yeah. lived on the east side. I would say the upper um, class was on the east side, and, and we worked really hard on the west side. I'm not sure oh. what, <laughs> what they did on the east side. For many years, families would say, well, I just don't go over to the west side. I don't know anything over there. I don't know anybody over there. How often do you see your brother? Oh, well, I never see him. He lives on the west side. You know, they <laughs> We only had two high schools, east and west side. It was a very heated rivalry. There was quite a competition there because there were very good football players on both sides of the river. East and West was all football. The week of that East-West game, if you wandered on the opposite side of the city, you could be in trouble if you were a West Sider on the East side and somebody spotted you. The headline in the Green Bay Press-Gazette sets the tone. Strangers not wanted at practice field. Both high school football squads are being protected against spotters. Student patrols guard the practice stunts every afternoon, and strangers are very politely told that their absence would be appreciated. Even though there was a rivalry, the spirit was good. It was fierce, but there was a pride in each side. There's no question that that rivalry fueled the interest in football in Green Bay, the passions that people still have for the game. A football star at Green Bay East High School, Curly Lambeau is a name the West High School Wildcats will not soon forget. Started four years, which was unusual. 
In his senior year, he led East to a 7-6 victory over West before 5,000 people. He scored the only touchdown, East's only touchdown, and kicked the extra point, and it was hailed as this great high school phenom. To quote the 1916 East High School Annual, Captain Curly Lambeau, his trusty toe and wonderful ground-gaining ability, gave East High the first football victory over crosstown rival West High in eight contests. After his senior year, Curly was going to the University of Wisconsin to play football. He showed up, perhaps briefly, never checked out equipment, never practiced, never enrolled at the university and went back home. Why? Don't know. But he had to know before he went there that freshmen were not eligible to play. Giving it another try, Lambeau enrolls at Notre Dame. Curley played as a freshman in the fall of 1918 at the University of Notre Dame for Newt Rockney. He played his freshman year down there and had a really good freshman season, but he had contacted tonsillitis. In January 1919, Curley returns to South Bend, Indiana before the start of the second semester. In a letter from Curley to his sweetheart, Miss Marguerite Van Kessel, from his sickbed in Soren Hall at the University of Notre Dame, February 5th, 1919. Traveling here seemed to make things worse and every night I had a fever. It kept up until a week ago Sunday when my neck started to swell. The next morning I saw a doctor and he told me to rush to the hospital at once. Then I spent eight days of torture and suffering. This will be all I write tonight as I am rather lazy and discouraged. But Marguerite, as long as you remain true to me and love me as much as ever, I am still happy. He then closes, professing his love. He dropped out of school and never went back. There's different stories about why he left school. That's something I don't think we'll ever know the answer to. Curly returns to Green Bay and goes back to work at the Indian Packing Company. He was working as a clerk of some sort. He was getting paid apparently pretty well, and going back to Notre Dame didn't seem to be an option. He was married on Saturday, August 16, 1919. Curly Lambeau was passionate about football, and he wanted to put together a team, and he wanted to keep playing. He ran into George Whitney Calhoun. Calhoun asked him what he was going to do about football. He said, well, you know, I'd... I'd like to play. There's all kinds of myths or legends about how George Calhoun and Curly Lambeau met. Nobody really knows whether it was on a street corner or in a bar or whatever. Calhoun allegedly said, well, why don't you start your own team? A bond is struck between Green Bay's new team and the city's daily newspaper, the Green Bay Press-Gazette. Without Curly, there is no Green Bay Packers. And he had the help of, of course, George Calhoun, who was a uh, editor at the Green Bay Press-Gazette. He came right out of Central Casting. He's the guy that you've seen in every movie from the 30s, the 40s. That was George Calhoun. There was a cloud of blue smoke hovering throughout <laughs> the newsroom, and it was, it was memorable. I never really had a conversation with him other than, hi, Cal, how are you doing? In those days, the men didn't think much of women in the newsroom. He liked to drink, mostly beer. He liked to chew cigars. He was fond of uh, Limburger cheese. Just a good, crusty old newspaper man. You gotta love him. He's just one of the editors, a guy who works in the office putting out the paper. He's interested in sports, and he wants to make this thing go. August 11th, 1919. The Green Bay Packers organize. The inaugural meeting is held at the Press-Gazette building in a dingy room on the second floor. Curly Lambeau was there. George Calhoun of the Press-Gazette was there. Hard to say who else was there. It was at the Press-Gazette, it was that date, and beyond that, much speculation. Which makes the Packers' history even more fascinating because there's so much myth to it. Some of the mystery adds to the allure. We're never going to really know what was said in that meeting with Curly Lambeau and George Calhoun. That mystery doesn't take anything away. It adds to the history. That's all we know for certain of the first meeting of what may be the most storied professional sports franchise in North America.
More is known about the second meeting held three days later. The follow-up meeting was the 14th. And from that point forward, the Press Gazette covered the team probably as thoroughly as any paper in any pro football city. Cal wrote a story in the paper and, and calling for a meeting of, you know, of, of players that were interested. He actually listed a number of the players you know, said, and intimated that they better report. About 25 young Huskies showed up and they started practicing three nights a week. Gus Rosenau, a one-armed player who was a teacher at West High School. The Dwyer brothers, Dutch and Riggy, from a West Side Railroad family. And Wally Ladro, who worked at Indian Packing with Curly. Lambeau was named captain, Calhoun was named manager. They were just starting an amateur town team. Indian Packing Company was gonna sponsor them and they were gonna play football. Curly Lambeau is the organizer, the coach. He went to his boss, Frank Peck, and asked him if he would help with sponsoring the team. Agreed to buy some equipment, some uniforms, probably provided some footballs. Indian Packing sponsored the Packers for two years. Both of those years were their semi-pro seasons. It was not any more glamorous. It wasn't any bigger than that. In the Press Gazette's first story, it refers to the Indian packing team as both the Packers and the Indians. Two days later, paper refers to the team only as the Packers. Where do the town teams end and the Packers begin? For me, it's always been 1919. That's the first time that they were called the Packers. It's the first time Curly Lambeau was captain of the team. Green Bay has an official football team. The Green Bay Press-Gazette is fully immersed in the happenings. My grandfather was a lawyer in Green Bay. He got the idea of starting a paper called the Free Press. He later merged it with the, the Gazette and it became the Press-Gazette. Andrew Turnbull, who was the publisher of the Press-Gazette, was a big promoter of the Packers from the get-go. Turnbull became one of the key architects of the corporate side of the Packers. Green Bay Press-Gazette had more to do with the Packers surviving in the 1920s than the Packers did. The standing behind the Packers is just part of making Green Bay something special. They had no employees other, other than Curly Lambeau. All their other work was done by volunteers, the businessmen in town. Actually, the Press-Gazette served as the Packers' offices throughout the 1920s. The paper is writing about a team it is basically running, and its editors have a front row seat. What George Whitney Calhoun does for this town football team, he really drums up interest in them. He knew that the Packers were going to be a big item for the Green Bay Press-Gazette. His primary job is to write stories for the Press-Gazette to get Green Bay excited about the Packers, Calhoun was de facto the marketing manager for the Green Bay Packers, and my dad was right there working for him. They would literally call up the sports writers and the editors and shill, the Packers are coming to town, you know, it's gonna be a big game, sell some tickets. The games that they played, they liked to hype them up. They certainly sold papers for the Press Gazette unlike any other event in Green Bay, so it was a symbiotic relationship in that sense. Cal could tell story after story after story about the Packers. He always got good coverage every city he went to. Cal was the first PR person for the, for the Packers, there's no doubt about that. He writes all kinds of publicity materials. He reaches out to other teams, he gets information. When the Packers are finally in a league, he's the contact to the league. The two people that are responsible for starting the Green Bay Packers, Curly Lambeau, and George Calhoun, one's a, a PR guy that spins the story, and the other is a habitual liar. Curly knew he was lying to you, but he was so good at it, you just wanted to believe him, and you wrote it down and wrote it as though it was the truth. What he told when he was being honest or not, you're not exactly entirely sure. Who knows what the real truth was? Green Bay citizens who stand witness to these early seasons could never have imagined the Packers would ever reach beyond the Fox River. At this point, the Packers are nothing more than an alumni team, a majority of them former East High and West High players, 12 of whom played in the East-West game in the fall of 1916 in the same class as Lambeau. In other words, 
He is forming the Packers with former high school friends. 1919, these guys are going to play football, the Indian packing team. Green Bay is a city of 30,000. It's not a big city. So there are not a lot of places to play. Teams arrange their own schedules. Games are announced week to week. Playing fields are town parks or sand lots. Packer home games are played in a roped-off section of Hagemeister Park. It was a big area that covered um, an area that we know today as Joannes Park and East High School. First season, they were selling snake oil football, basically. But it's football, and it's in Green Bay. They played in an open field with no bleachers. There wasn't a whole lot they had to do other than find some teams willing to come here and play. Their first game, September 14, 1919. The Packers played their first game at Hagemeister Park against the Menominee North End Athletic Club. Packers' first opponent sounds like a fairly formidable football team. There's not a lot known other than they defeated them very easily, 53 to nothing. The Menominee Herald leader identified it as the Leannis Colts, which was just a neighborhood team that had been put together in a couple days. Curly Lambeau, as the best player and captain, called the plays on the field. You couldn't play, call a play from the sidelines. On the field, by the captain. And he was captain and star. The team was built around him. Lambeau was the first and only coach that made the forward pass his basic offense. Most of the coaches, uh, your running game is your basic offense. But in the case of Lambeau, he was a passer himself in high school. The ball was fatter, made it harder to pass. The rules were stacked somewhat against the pass. You had to throw five yards behind the line of scrimmage. If you threw incomplete in the end zone, the ball went over to the other team. The Packers closed their first season 10 and one, outscoring their opponents 565 to 12. And you wonder, well, how did they outscore them so easily? They're putting these games together almost on the fly. The only loss, their final game to the Beloit Ferries. And the Packers, actually lost their one game six to nothing in a very controversial way. The Packers had three touchdowns called back um, by a local official by the name of George Zip Zabel. The Green Bay Press Gazette has a headline that screams, the champions were robbed by official Zabel. One of the interesting things about that 1919 team some of those players played with the Packers and then played college football later. That first season, winners on the field, losers at the bank. There was no way to collect admission. There was no fence. There was just a rope around Hagemeister Park. Calhoun and others had passed a hat, hoping people drop some spare change in it to pick up a little cash to live on. The first year, 1919, they didn't make any money. They said, if you like the first half, put something in the cap and for the second half. The ball players used to get their 50 cents a day out of the game, but they're still out there participating and sacrificing their life for the game of football. 1920, things change. Neil Murphy, a local typewriter salesman, is named business manager. He took care of the scheduling of the teams, arranging with the managers of who would meet who and where on what dates, kept charge of the money. Murphy's first order of business is to get permission to build a fence around Hagemeister Park. Without a fence around a field where you got an athletic contest going on, it's pretty tough to charge admission. How do you build a fence? You get lumber donated and you have the Green Bay Press Gazette put an article in the paper all those interested in a fence around the field, bring your hammers to Hagemeister Park. Murphy gets the fans out to build this fence so he can charge them to walk through on Sundays to watch the games. Uh, ingenious. Dad was on the sidelines getting the gate receipts, handling all the things that you have to do. He played a very underrated and very important role in Packers history because the Packers made money in 1920. The team made $6,000. Packers players play on Sunday for the sum of change in their pockets as they continue to work nine to five jobs to make a living. 
when needed, fans willingly dig into their pockets for their Green Bay Packers. Ricky Dwyer had played football at Green Bay West. He was an end. Started for the Packers in 1920. He was a fairly decent football player, but he had a terrible accident on the railroad. In late November, he slipped under a railroad car at about three in the morning, cried for help, was rushed to local hospital, had an arm and a leg amputated. He was in really, really tough shape, and they actually ran a benefit game for him to help in his expenses. Neil Murphy organized it. They picked up two teams, mostly a Packers inner squad game, Bellevue Ice Creams and the Northern Paper Mills. One wore East High's uniform, the other wore St. Norbert's uniforms. Raised enough money that Murphy was able to take a check for more than $4,000 and present it to Dwyer in the hospital bed. Tough story, but also heartwarming and what they did for him to raise that money and help with his medical expenses. At the end of the second season, December 1920, Acme Packing Company of Chicago purchases Indian Packing. The Indian Packing Company Packers become the Acme Packers. On August 27, 1921, the American Professional Football Association admits the Acme Packing Company team of Green Bay, Wisconsin to its membership. They were really the Acme Packers, you could say for two months, I don't believe the Packers ever paid a franchise fee. There's no record of it. George Hallis said it was never charged. In order to join this group, you had to put up $100 for a franchise. I think it's worth a little more than that now. But I, there was never a doubt as to what type of game we had. Curly Lambeau over the years said that he paid from $5 to $25 to $50 to $250. His story changed every time he told it. Uh, the league in 1921 was really made up of small town teams just like the Green Bay Packers. When Green Bay was admitted to what became the NFL, it was the seventh largest city in the state of Wisconsin. Superior was bigger, Oshkosh was bigger, and the three biggest cities were Milwaukee, Racine, and Kenosha. And they at all point, at some point during the 1920s, had franchises, they all fell by the wayside. Green Bay's population is a mere 31,000 people. It is the smallest of several small Midwestern cities among the APFA's 21 members. We're the third oldest team in the National Football League, just by a couple of days with the Bears, and of course the Cardinals are the oldest. That's always been an issue with the size of the city. Can this city support a pro football team? The Packers needed benefactors in the 1920s. None of these teams, not even Chicago, were tremendous successes. Yes, they were in bigger cities. They had a larger potential audience to draw from, but it was still a small operation. The Packers' credibility grows when they announce the signing of tackle Howard Cub Buck, a University of Wisconsin All-American and a member of Jim Thorpe's Canton Bulldogs. Curley signs him for a whopping $100 a game. Jim Thorpe's team was considered one of the best in the country. Cub Buck was a lineman, a big lineman, just over six feet, weighed upwards of 250 pounds. The size of the average person back in those days was nowhere near six feet, 250. And he was from the state. He played for five years and was in the lineup almost every week. He could kick field goals, he could punt, he could block. Occasionally he returned to kickoff. That would be quite a sight seeing this big man lumbering down the field. The Packers host the Minneapolis Marines on October 23, 1921. It is the Packers' first game in the APFA, the American Professional Football Association. The word was that if the Packers didn't win that game, they would have been booted out of the league. Minneapolis was a very strong team. And boy, if they could fare well against a team like that, then we might have a future. Green Bay drew a fairly good crowd to that Minneapolis game. We ended up pulling that game out seven to six, just in the last few minutes. Good old George wrote, cushions went flying in the air while soaring hats were as thick as Green Bay flies in a July night. That was the start of the Packer football on a much more major level than we had played in 1919 and 1920. 
With each game, the passion for the team grows. Packers had always had an avid fan base, and they had a core of fans that really got heavily involved. It was just one big family gathering, and everybody loved the Packers. East and West, surprising they came together even to support a football team. Fans kept coming, not just from Green Bay, but from all over the state. You had to show you could be competitive. By the end of the season, they got an opportunity to go to Chicago and play the Cardinals and Bears in back-to-back -back weeks. There was a lot of support for the team on the road in those days as well. When they face off against the Chicago Cardinals for the first time, the faithful gather at Turner Hall in downtown Green Bay for play-by-play -play reports. Fans that stayed behind, they could follow the game on what they called the grid graph. It had a wooden football that you could move back and forth. So a play would happen in Chicago, it would get relayed to Green Bay, and then they would move that football, whatever number of yards were gained on the play. So fans at Turner Hall could know what was going on down in Chicago just seconds after it occurred down there. Here's this little city playing in this big league and they're holding their own. That's what drew people to the Packers. Hold their own, they do. Much to the chagrin of many teams, one in particular. Any Packers Bear game was bigger than any other game. Chicago with George Hallis. That was a step up for the Packers to be able to play them. November 27th, 1921. Several hundred fans in a makeshift band with 20 horn players and a handful of drummers descend on Chicago for the first Packers-Bears football game. It wasn't out of George Hallis's fondness for the city, Green Bay, or anything. He needed to win, and he probably needed another gate. There were large contingents of Packer fans going down there. And they met at midnight at the Elks Club in downtown Green Bay, marched to the Chicago Northwestern Depot, caught a train to Chicago. They didn't get a wink of sleep. Stumbling off a midnight train, the self-proclaimed Lumberjack Band marched through the loop and out to Cubs Park, causing a ruckus along the way. It's just a regular band from around Green Bay, and uh, you know they'd play football songs and stuff like that. They drank all the way down to Chicago on the train, got off the train, and started marching through the loop, playing their instruments. They marched through several hotel lobbies, including the Packers. They dressed like lumberjacks, and it was a great band. The two first coaches, George Hallis, Curly Lambeau, they were players at the time, and that game in 1921, George Hallis scored the last touchdown for the Bears. They beat us pretty good that first game, 20 to nothing. But a rivalry was started. The Packers become the biggest draw on the Bears' schedule, as rivalrous as it is. Hallis and Lambeau really didn't care for one another. Both George Hallis, the founder of the Bears, and Curley were showmen, let's face it. And uh, they made it a point never to shake hands after a game. They were two ultimate competitors and wanted to beat each other so bad that they would do whatever it took. There's some misconceptions about George Hallis and how he was this great friend of the Packers. He was when it benefited his bottom line. He wasn't necessarily when it didn't benefit his bottom line. George and Curly Lambeau were entirely two different characters altogether. First of all, Lambeau was more a gentleman on the sidelines than most coaches. He got riled up once in a while. And over on the other side was old George Hallis, and he was an official baiter. He was always cursing him out. The biggest problem that the officials had with George Hallis, he wanted to follow the team down the field, clear down to the end zone, and had a hard time keeping him on the bench. There are times he was a raving maniac. At first, Chicago really didn't want to come to Green Bay because the attendance wasn't going to be comparable to Chicago. By the mid-20s, George Hallis wanted them to come to Chicago and play there twice a season because they were drawing better than any other team that he was bringing in. Excitement quickly turns to disappointment. The end of the 1921 season, played the game against the Racine Legion. It was a non-league game, billed as the state championship game. The Packers use three players, three college players. It can't do that. That's, that's not allowed. They were caught. Notre Dame punished the players. In early 1922, the 
Packers are ousted from the league. Not until the summer of 1922 is there a meeting at which they are allowed back into the league. Part of that was because of Curly Lambeau's persistence, but I think another part of it was they also sensed Green Bay was a good city for the league. A league that, at that 1922 meeting, takes on a new name. It becomes the National Football League. A new league president is charged with doling out the punishment. Joe Carr, as a new president, felt compelled that he had to do something to clean up his game. The Packers post a forfeit fee of $1,000 and are back in. So the Packers get caught using um, college players. And where do the players that had used up their college eligibility end up? They end up with the Chicago Bears. The early 20s sees the growth of a powerful team. Big name players, big draws, home and away. Oodles of fans. On November 5th, the Packers face off against the Columbus Panhandlers at Hagemeister Park. Packers had an insurance policy. If you got so much rain, they would pay a certain amount of money to compensate you for the loss of that revenue. Unfortunately, that game, the rain did not amount quite to the, what the insurance policy stated. $1,500 lost. Rain falls three one-hundredths of an inch short of the amount needed for the Packers to collect on their insurance. So the Packers couldn't profit from that. Survival looks bleak. Survival always looks bleak. The deep in debt Packers look to their rivals. The Packers wanted the Bears to play on Thanksgiving Day. George Hallis said, our team will come up there if you can raise $4,000 as a guarantee. That was a lot of money. Packers were not going to be able to do that. So instead, they scheduled Duluth. That day arrived, and there's another rainstorm. The Duluth paper described it as a 12-hour rainfall. Curly Lambeau, George Whitney Calhoun, should we play the game? Andrew Turnbull told him that if they didn't play the game, it would be the end of pro football in Green Bay. He said, I'll back you up as far as the losses you'll incur in the game, but you got to play that game because if you don't, your credibility's not going to be there. He told them that if they played, once the season was over, he'd try to galvanize the community to get behind the team. As feared, only a few hundred people are on hand. The game is another financial disaster. They played the game, Green Bay won. That was not that important. What was important was Turnbull made good on his promise. The result shapes one of the most remarkable business stories in history. Turnbull and a local attorney by the name of John Kill call a meeting a local businessman. Andrew Turnbull and some other business people came up with the idea of issuing stock on the team. The plan is, right from the start, to create some kind of a corporation that turns out to be a public corporation, a nonprofit corporation, to save the franchise, to keep it in Green Bay. And it became a community-owned team that was huge. And they issued 1,000 shares, around $5 a piece, and raised 5,000. The share of stock was five bucks, but you also got season tickets. That was enough money to keep the team going. They just wanted donations, basically, from the businessmen of Green Bay. It didn't take very long for them to realize that the Packers were something that could bring Green Bay some notoriety. Over the course of the next nine months, they created the Green Bay Football Corporation prior to the 1923 season. There was the whole aspect of it being shareholder-owned rather than by an individual. That's always made this team um, special in terms of ownership. If a single owner had gotten control of the Packers, the team would not be here. Strong for now. In 1923, the team moves on to Bellevue Park. Bellevue was primarily a baseball field, and they converted it to football for the 23 and 24 seasons, but it wasn't ideal for football. Then they move into New City Stadium, new being 1925. Started out as a 5,000-seat stadium, eventually grew into a 25,000-seat stadium. One of the guys who helped build it was Curly Lambeau's dad. He was a carpenter. When I was a young kid, my dad took me to games at City Stadium. 
When we passed through the turnstile, they only had money for one ticket. So the turnstile guy said, double up. You don't want to pay to go see the Packers when you're a kid. We went under, over, or through the fence. You just scoop a little uh, dirt uh, uh, from under the two by four, and we could belly under there. We'd crawl up uh, between the risers and the bleachers and sit in the stands. We always took a blanket because those seats at City Stadium, they're all splinters. Even though it was the wooden seats, it was the Packers, our Packers, you know. They had no toilet facilities. The men, they all went down at halftime underneath the stands and did their job. And the women, they had to hold it until they got home. A lot of teams loved to play in Green Bay because it was a football field. We always played in baseball stadiums. Here you played in the football natural grass. I'm an usher, I'm right back of the Packer bench, 40 yard line, my idols are sitting right there, I could almost spit on them. And on Tuesday or Wednesday, a check arrived from the Packers for $2.50. Not only could I see my idols, I got paid. I got paid for it. I saw every home game. We saw some great games in the, in the old city stadium in the 20s. That's what made professional football, at least got it off the ground with the Bear Packers series. That's where the rivalry, which was so critical to the Packers' survival, came of age. Hallis pacing up one side of the stadium, and Lambeau smoking cigarettes and pacing on the other side, and sending their warriors in. It was never really appreciated. It was always criticized for what it wasn't, but that's where the Packers came of age. The remainder of the decade, while other small-town teams struggle and perish, the Packers begin to flourish. The NFL cut from 22 to 12 teams, almost in half. It's amazing how we survived, but, but Joe Carr saw Green Bay was that one small city that he did not want to eliminate. Green Bay survived, Milwaukee didn't. You think about Dayton Triangles, Rochester Jeffersons, Frankfurt Yellow Jackets, Pottsville Maroons. These teams are all gone, but the Packers did survive. They survived because Curly Lambeau built a powerful football team. The final seasons of the Packers' first decade are dubbed the Iron Man era of pro football. You can't take away anything from those gentlemen who played in the 1920s. They played 60 minutes, offense, defense. Toughness. They epitomize what this game is all about. Toughness, dedication, desire, love of, camaraderie. All those things. All 11 that started the game, finished the game. You didn't have the scouting system that you have today, so a lot of times uh, Lambeau would scout himself. I can't imagine how he got some of these guys to come up here and play, but he did, and they were exceptional players. He was bringing players to Green Bay who probably never even heard of Green Bay until they heard from Curly Lambeau. There was no draft then. You just brought players in, and you signed them to your team. 1929, not much more than a month span, Packers signed Cal Hubbard, Johnny Blood, and Mike Machowski. To this day, is probably the biggest off-season signing coup in the history of pro football. Veteran lineman Cal Hubbard, Iron Mike Machowski, and all-around back Johnny Blood, they become the nucleus of a team that wins three straight NFL championships. All three of them are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You have Hubbard, who was a tackle. He was one of the best tackles in football. He was a mountain of a man for his time. 6'4", 250 to 270 pounds, fast, dominated the line of scrimmage. Just a brute force. His first four years in the league, one year with New York and three years with Green Bay, his team won the championship. And I don't think that was just a coincidence. Wachowski was a guard, one of the best around. He uh, played at Penn State. Tremendous anchor in the line. Premier guard in the league. Opposite of Hubbard, he was smaller and quicker. They made a good tandem. Johnny Blood, who was a running back, but also a fantastic receiver. In 1931, he caught 10 touchdown passes. He only was thrown the ball maybe 20 or 22 times that season, so every other pass he catches, he's in the end zone. Tremendous athlete. He could do a lot of things that other people couldn't. 
the name McNally never appeared in a pro football box score. He adopted the pseudonym Johnny Blood. I had a motorcycle at the time, and a friend of mine wanted to go out with me. So we got on my motorcycle, and we passed a theater with them on the marquee. It says, Blood and Sand with Valentino. So I said, I've got some more eligibility in college, and I've got to protect it. So I'm going to take the name Blood, and you take the name Sand. I don't regret it. It's, uh, I've been lucky under the name. Probably the biggest character in the history of the league. So you get all three of those players in one season. The legends of the game, and they add them all in one year. That really was what put them over the top. It's no wonder the Packers went 12-0-1, outscored their opponents 198-22. That's just a huge infusion of talent in one offseason. Curly Lambeau, the driving force behind these greats of the gridiron, changes the game. He was mentally strong, he was arrogant, he was selfish, highly competitive. Very confident in himself, always, about everything. He pioneered the forward pass in professional football. He was going at times to throw 40 to 45 passes in a game, when most teams were three yards in a cloud of dust. The scoring in the early years was not the way pro football is today. Much of the game's pressure rests on the toe of the punter. Sports writers, when they were reporting the games, would often talk about how one punter would shift the field position over the opposing punter. If you got one touchdown in the game, that was big. Punt the ball deep, hope your opponent makes a mistake down near its goal line, you recover, and then you have a very short field. No punter is better than Vern Llewellyn. He plays nine seasons with Green Bay and is arguably the Packers' most valuable player during that period. Every time Llewellyn punted, the Packers would gain five or 10 yards in field position. Packers won a big game and one of their biggest games ever when they beat the Giants in 1929 at the Polo Grounds. Vern Llewellyn was the difference in the game. A number of times during that game, he punted on first down and just changed field position. Old timers consider him the greatest punter ever. Charlie Matice claimed Vern Llewellyn was the greatest player in Packers history. Matice played quarterback for the Packers from 1922 to 26 and was the leading receiver during that period of time because quarterbacks weren't necessarily the featured passer. All the great players that have come before and all the great players that will come after. Those are the people that really made the game. And, and they, you know, they didn't, they didn't uh, play the game for money and they didn't play the game for fame. They played the game because they loved the game. Imagine how Green Bay was after they won their first NFL championship. It was like little Green Bay is competing with the big boys. Ninth year in the league, they win their first championship, 1929. Truly amazing. Now there isn't a championship game at this point. This is all based on standings and records. The big win was in New York, but then they finished up with a victory over the Bears and that was the clincher. Following the win, over 20,000 fans greet the champs at the train depot. Quite a turnout for a town of only 37,000. In 1929, we got nothing for winning the championship. We did have a tremendous reception when we came back in, into Green Bay from uh, winning the championship on the road. A mere six weeks following the start of the Great Depression, Fans still contribute more than $5,000 to a Packers championship fund. Then they had a celebration night for us. And at that time, they gave us a nice watch, and a nice pocketbook with, I believe, $250 in it. Mayor John Diener tells the crowd, Green Bay may be the 241st city in size, but it's the first city in football. This is a much bigger story than just than just the David versus Goliath angle. You've got the unique ownership. You've got the small city. You've got the passionate fans. It is a celebration of the masses for the masses, for the team and for the fans themselves. A decade of continuous support beyond the pocketbook. The Catholic Women's Club, early 1920s, raised money to buy blankets for the players so they'd be warm on the sidelines. Around that same time, the Packers were playing the Racine in Milwaukee, probably couldn't afford transportation. We don't exist without this community coming to our rescue and standing beside us. The people of Green Bay loved the team. It was a very good team. It was more successful than many of the other teams that went away. 
They asked the fans who had cars to transport the players so they could have a ride to Milwaukee. I don't think any team has a relationship with its community the way the Packers do. The Catholic Church even joins in on the fan fury. Changed its time of its Sunday morning masses to 5.30 on the weekends when the Packers were playing the Bears in Chicago so fans could go and catch the train. Green Bay survives because of the attitude and the determination of the people in the city. Without that, Packers wouldn't be here. All of the other little cities that started out with football back when Green Bay did in the early 1920s, they all faded away. But this one continued to exist, and not only exist, but thrived under Curly Lambeau. This is a franchise. Every other franchise in the National Football League would like to be like. The tradition here is remarkable. The fandom, incredible. You could make movies about this. People say, that's never going to happen in real life. Well, it did. I was seven years old, and the Packers, as you know, are in the midst of their first championship year, 1929. They were undefeated, and they went to New York. The game was, it was November 24th. Most people think 1929 is famous because that was the year of the Great Depression. Well, that, that's in the history books. But actually, three weeks later, something more important happened. The Packers' first radio broadcast occurred. Russ Winnie from WTMJ Milwaukee was in a room in Milwaukee watching ticker tape. It wasn't live. He was watching ticker tape and he would re recreate it. Because we were all, all excited. Everybody was excited. We can follow the game play by play. A lot of times there were no broadcast booths and very often the Packers played in baseball stadiums. Well, the baseball press box is at the back of home plate. Well, that's no good for football. 